when I take a photo of a stranger, letting the stranger tell me without words, I'll be one to be shown to the world. Because the minute I ask someone, can I take your photo, it no longer becomes about me, the photographer, what I want or what they are willing to give me, you know, of themselves and of their time. And so for me, a lot of this came from my own background, especially when I moved to the U.S. and I was isolated a lot because people tend to isolate and exclude what they don't understand. And so people didn't understand me a lot. And so a lot of that I bring now into my work. How can I create understanding? How can I create this connection so that people are not excluded, they're not isolated, they're seen for who they are? Welcome to the Genius Women Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer with work in some incredible publications like National Geographic, Farm Magazine, and more. And this year, you'll see my name in places like Condé Nast Traveler. I'm on a mission to help other women who want to grow their travel storytelling careers go after their dreams while feeling supported, worthy, and bold. If you're ready to ditch your fear and doubt to the side, step into your brilliance and take action on your dreams, you're in the right place. Let's go. Before we get started, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by our Circle membership. The Circle is our membership for women and their supporters who want to get their travel stories published. We have weekly check-ins, monthly idea brainstorm sessions, curated opportunities to pursue in the travel media space, pitch reviews where I give you feedback on your pitches, and much, much more. Enrollment in the circle is open right now, and you can join us as a monthly or an annual member. If you've been on the fence about joining us, now is the time, because in September, we're going to close enrollment as we prepare for our one-year anniversary. So if you've been thinking about this, now is the time. Visit GeniusWomen.com circle to get started. Today, I have a very, very special episode to share with you, dear listeners. Lola Akinmade Akerstrom is an award-winning storyteller, travel photographer, writer, creator, TED speaker, and author. In short, she's a multi-potentialite. Lola was born in Nigeria and lived in the United States before making Sweden her home, from which she explores countries, cultures, people, and ideas. She's a full-force creator who is warm, kind, inspiring, and who, when you're in her presence, makes it feel like anything you set out to achieve is possible. I was thrilled when we were able to sit down and talk, especially because right now is a really busy time for Lola as she's gearing up for the launch of her upcoming novel, In Every Mirror She's Black, this September. Congratulations, Lola. In our conversation, Lola shares how the manuscript for her novel was rejected 70 times, 7-0, before being picked up and how now the book is out with four different publishers. You can also find a link to pre-order the book in our show notes. Lola and I covered a lot of ground in this episode, from pitching and rejections and being prepared when National Geographic comes knocking on your door, to how we can stop putting ourselves into boxes and not let others put us in limiting boxes too. If there's only one episode you ever listen to in our podcast, let it be this one. I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. 
and I hope you enjoy this episode. Yay, everyone! We have Lola in the house! (laughs) Welcome, Lola. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. And like I told you before we started recording, a lot of people see you as a huge inspiration. So I'm so happy that we get to talk to you today. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. The honor is mine. I am so excited to be here. And thank you all. Thank you. So... If you could, before we start digging into your amazing career and all the projects that you've done and your journey, can you tell us a little bit about a favorite image of yours that you've ever taken or a favorite story that you worked on that is one of your favorites? Ooh, well, I have so many kind of memorable stories and photos, but the one that immediately jumps to mind is one where I went ski sledding in uh, northern Sweden. And I captured a moment where one of the huskies turned back and looked at me. And it was just this kind of eye contact. And the reason why that photo is special, you know, you're going to see it. Just that kind of villager animal connection. But that was the photo that also helped kind of launch my relationship with National Geographic, right? Because that photo became a double page spread. So when you open it, you see that dog looking back at you. And then that photo spread was what a producer saw, that they reached out to me to be part of a National Geographic Channel collaboration with South African Tourism. And then that led to me getting signed by the then National Geographic Image Collection. And then kind of the rest is a little bit of history, right? But that image is one that really I always remember because it was it really kind of opened up a lot. In terms of not just taking a photo of an animal, but actually how do you connect, capturing that connection, right? Yes. Oh, I love that. that. (laughs) I love that. I love that story. And I started asking this question on the podcast recently. And more often than not, what I'm seeing, what people are telling me back is often images of actually wildlife and animals and and special moments like that. I think even now I'm I'm saying and I have goosebumps. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I love environmental portraits of people. That's kind of what I really specialize in, in meeting strangers around the world and capturing just natural, raw images of them. And so for this one picture about animal, you know, like an animal to kind of be the one that jumps to mind also shows how special it also was for me as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And I love that you shared the story how that one image opened so many opportunities for you. And a lot of times... It's like that in our journeys, isn't it? That one step we take, that one thing we do, suddenly... Actually, I have a similar story with my Jordan adventure. You know, I've been going to Jordan. I love the community there. I became a friend of the community. And that trip to Jordan really launched my relationship with National Geographic as well. So I can totally relate to that. And we just never know. Exactly, absolutely. And the one caveat I wanted to add was, you were prepared, right? So that when they came, it wasn't just like this one shot overnight success or anything. It was that you had put in the work over the years so that when the opportunity came, you were ready. Oh. So I just wanted to add that caveat in there because people always think things happen overnight when they technically don't because you've been putting in years of hard work, sleepless nights, hustling, <laughs> you know, toiling until then when you are ready and the opportunity came, then it became a perfect match. Oh, 
Okay, Lola, we can just cut it right here because this is it. This is it right there. You know, this is. <laughs> no, I'm joking, of course. But you know, this is what at least the message that I try to put out into the world for people who want to be in this path is: it takes time, and it takes commitment and perseverance, and being ready at the right moment. It's going to come that moment for all of us in whatever shape or form. But absolutely, it's not that one day I decided to become a travel photographer. The next day, National Geographic like exactly. knocks on my door, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Oh, amazing. And we're going to get into your journey and your path because it's absolutely inspiring. You've worked with some incredible brands like National Geographic, like BBC, Lonely Planet, The New York Times. You're a multi-award winning journalist. You work with different brands like Intrepid Travel, Mercedes-Benz and others. I read somewhere that with your work, you want the viewers to first and foremost, see the humanity in the people that you photograph and you represent. And that's just such a clear vision of what you want your work to be. So I'm curious, now that you're at this level and you have all these different projects that you're working on and different opportunities, how do you decide what is the next thing that I'm going to be working on? Walk us through that process a little bit. No, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the work I do, I do a lot of things in different kind of arenas. And the common thread is cultural connection, right? It's connecting with people, trying to facilitate understanding try to create some bridge between our similarities so we can understand each other, see each other better and listen to each other. And so in my photography, that is just me when I take a photo of a stranger, letting the stranger tell me without words how they want to be shown to the world. Because the minute I ask someone, can I take your photo, it no longer becomes about me, the photographer, what I want or what they're willing to give me, you know, of themselves and of their time. And so for me, a lot of this came from my own background, especially when I moved to the U.S. and I was isolated a lot because people tend to isolate and exclude what they don't understand. And so people didn't understand me a lot. And so a lot of that I bring now into my work. How can I create understanding? How can I create this connection so that people are not excluded? They're not isolated. They're seen for who they are because that was what I wanted. And so that's what I bring into my work. I bring it into the photography, look into the person's eyes. The photo doesn't have to be the most amazingly staged photo, but what you want to see is that connection, that moment of intimacy. When I take the picture of the person, then you can see that we're not looking at anything else but each other. There's that moment. And you as a photographer, you also know this. There's that moment when the person is looking at you and nothing else matters because you're both looking at each other. That's what I want the viewers to see. Because then you're fully seeing the person without then judging them based on the environment. You're looking at them first. And then in my travel writing, that's also what I bring. I write very transparently. So people tell me who they are through my words. And even with the book projects I do, again, it's about facilitating cultural understanding so that we understand each other more and give each other space to just be and exist. That's so beautiful. I'm resonating with it on so many different levels because I think for a lot of us who get into particularly travel storytelling space, I believe that's what drives a lot of us, that we all see beyond constructed 
notions of what separates us and we see the shared humanity of us and we want to share that with the world. I don't know why I keep getting goosebumps today. It's you, Lola, I think. It's because we're talking truth, you know, we're just, you know, we're talking just real, organic, transparent truth. You know, I mean, we're all human. We all want to be seen for who we are. We want to exist without explanation. And so that's why it's kind of resonating is because we just want to be and we want to give that to others as well through our work. So I don't know. I guess I'm too much of an idealist. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But I'd rather be that than a skeptic, you know? Yes. And I love that you also mentioned all the different projects that you do because there is this train of thought that says, oh, you have to do one thing and do it exceptionally well. I'm a multi-passionate person. I do lots of different projects. They all revolve around the travel sphere. But one day I can be a writer. The next day I'm an entrepreneur with my travel company, like you are with Local Purse, which we're going to get into. Like, I just love that, that this is a model for how to be in the space and you don't have to restrict yourself to one lane, right? Yes, absolutely. And I resonate with what you're saying. And I think, I don't know if you found out, there's a word called multi-potentialized. Mm. Yes. You need to Google it because I think that's what you are as well, right? Yes. And multi-potentialized is someone that thrives on lots of different passions and they're pretty good at all of them. And what happens is people tend to get frustrated at multi-potentialized because they want us to pick a lane. Yes. They don't know how to define us, right? Going back to that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and society likes to put people in boxes and give you labels and say, you know what, you're a travel writer. Well, but what if I'm also a travel photographer and then I'm also this and I'm also that? Am I not allowed to do all that? And so, yes, that is how I try. I am a multi-potentialite. I am glad I kind of found that. I try not to put labels on myself, but this is a label I will gladly put on because I found the community and understood this was why I felt excluded or sidelined for many years because people felt like they couldn't define me or couldn't put me in a box or you want link. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit of your story. So some time ago, you made a bold move of leaving behind your programmer's job in Ohio. I think it was Ohio and applying for a media team volunteering position for a race in Fiji. And that was when you were like, I'm just going to go for it. This is going to be my career from now on. And I'm wondering what was that thing that really helped you overcome that fear? If you actually, maybe you didn't have that fear, but I know a lot of people listening have that fear of leaving something very traditional, very secure behind and saying, you know what, I'm just going to go for this thing. How did that happen for you? So I'll give you a little bit of more context. I was still a programmer when I went to Fiji, and I was still a programmer when I came back. I just started Very floating. important, very crucial exactly. context. <laughs> exactly. So I did not just swan dive out of all my responsibilities into this, right? So what I did was, when I came back from Fiji, I started plotting how I wanted to transition. And Fiji was 2002, so I'm dating myself now, but that experience was 2002, long time ago, and I didn't leave my programming job fully until 2009. So that was seven years later, but I already started on the side building my travel writing portfolio. So that by the time I was able to leave, even though I took a nosedive in terms of the income, 
like I lost about 60% of my income, it wasn't to zero. So at least I took a dive and started at 40 and then built my way back up and even more over the years, right? And I think I wrote about this is, yes, life is short. We have to do what we want to do now. If you have some responsibilities, that shouldn't stop you from doing what you want to do, but they're also still your responsibilities. So you have to find an adult way of trying to get out of there, you know, at least wrap them up so you can do what you want to do fully, right? So for me, that was my way of thinking is I knew this was my part. I wasn't just going to go and quit right away. Some people, maybe that works for them. If they have no other responsibilities or have no other activities or are just free, absolutely. But for me, I had a condo, you know, I was bringing I had my car, you know, I had a life. And then I was, I just had to create that transition period as well as create my portfolio as a travel writer and start building that brand and that side of me so that when I did leave, it wasn't just into like oblivion himself. Gosh, Lola, I think this is a very refreshing way to talk about quit your job and pursue your dream type thing because a lot of people talk about it in a lot of different ways but there's always like I feel like there's these two extremes you either quit your job immediately and swan dive like you say or you don't do it because you're scared right but I love how you put it do it the adult way <laughs> there is a third way there's many different ways to arrive to where you want to be this is just absolutely great and the thing you said about building your portfolio right this is so crucial and that goes back to what we just talked about, where Nagio knocks on your door. You have to build your portfolio, and that takes time. And so what is that way for you? If you're listening right now and you have a job that maybe takes all of your juices, because that was the case for me. I had a corporate job that absolutely squeezed me so dry that I had nothing to give to anything else outside of that. So for me, the option was I need to quit this corporate job because I'm not able to co-build in that space. But maybe you have a job that gives you more space. So then in that space is when you create that portfolio and do it this sort of more gradual way. I guess the point is that there are so many different ways to arrive at a place where you want. Yes, of course. Um, if you actually had a corporation where you absolutely need that job or you feel like the only other option is to quit it. Then what you have to do is, first of all, look at all your skills, right? Am I a writer? Am I a photographer? What can I do? Can I maybe copy edit, you know, for a while? And then leave that job that you want to leave that you hate. But then take some of those skills and try and get something part-time or what I call anchor clients. Most travel writers are not travel writing full-time. They actually have a lot of anchor corporate clients. So half of their time is travel writing. The other half are for the corporate clients where they use their skills to make more money in those environments, whether it's copy editing or ghostwriting or brand collaborations. That's where they make most of the money. The editorial is just the fancy bylines because most editorial, they don't pay that much. It's not, it's max one to two dollars a word. Most of them are much less than that. So most travel writers don't just do that. They actually have for that kind of side gigs that's related to their skills. So if you're in that corporate job, it doesn't mean you can't leave, you can still leave it, but you can then, I call it uh, not putting your eggs in a whole basket. Yes. I don't do that. <laughs> I have like one egg in a million different baskets. <laughs> and then putting those skills in different places so that it keeps you afloat while it comes out time 
to actually do what you want to do? Oh, Lola, exactly, right? Exactly it, because not a lot of people talk about this. That's the reality, right? That's how we are able to go on with this lifestyle because yes like this industry doesn't pay investment banking salaries unfortunately <laughs> right and for me what i always say is find something that can sustain you as you continue in this path as you continue pursuing those dream projects of yours what can i be and i love that you made it really practical for our listeners like other skills that you have or skills that are related to this dream that you can work with corporate clients, with brands. There is so much demand for that on that side of the equation, right? That it's, it's absolutely doable. Absolutely. You know, and so most travel writers do that or even travel photographers, especially with last year, you know, just the way travel came to a standstill. Most of them do other things as well. It's still related to their skills. So it's not like really random. Otherwise, then you're not moving forward right? What you want to do is do things with your skill sets, things that you still enjoy, that will still keep moving you closer to your goals. So absolutely. Love it. Love it. Hey friends, I'm interrupting myself here for a quick second to let you know that I've created a brand new resource just for you. If you're enjoying listening to this podcast and want to start pitching your travel stories, go to geniuswomen.com slash pitch to get access to my private pop-up podcast of three short episodes that reveal the secrets of successful pitching. That's geniuswomen.com slash P-I-T-C-H. Okay, back to this episode. Okay, let's talk about pitching because pitching is something that always scares people a lot. And this is something that I found people are not able to untangle their personal worth yes. and the pitches that they put out. And so when those rejections come or when that silence comes, it's like this is a judgment on how horrible I am. <laughs> and I've dedicated the whole podcast to saying, no, let's untangle those because that doesn't mean absolutely that you're not good enough. But what I want to talk to you about is specifically rejections, right? Because that is for every 10 pitches that you send out, maybe, I don't know, nine of them will come back rejections overall. That's the nature of the industry. So how do we navigate that? Exactly. So I don't know if you know this, but for 10 years, I publicly published on my blog all my assignment rates, my rejections, my in-limbo, and then pictures I heard nothing from. And I call them like pie chats. And I'll send you a link to that because I think you'll find that interesting. So I started from 2008 to 2018. I stopped. Because at that point, I just felt like I didn't need to anymore. But for 10 years, I publicly created a pie chart that showed 30% acceptance rate at the end of the year or 10% rejections, 30% interested, so that it was transparently showing what the industry was like, as well as showing how I was growing as a writer using the feedback. Because a lot of writers do not know how to self-assess. They do not know how to edit or audit their work, and they take things too personally, right? So when I started my first few years, just the pie chart was mostly red. <laughs> just rejections, right? And I was throwing all sorts of pictures out until I started looking at the responses I was getting back. When an editor writes back to you and says, not interested, that's a good thing. One, 
their email still works. Two, they are still at the magazine. Three, it's an opening for you to then ask them. So, for example, if an editor says, sorry, we're not covering Jordan right now, and they reject you, you just write back, thank you so much. What are the regions you're covering are interested in? They'll tell you, middle list. Then two weeks later, you say, oh, here's a story from online. That is how you work. That is how you work as a writer to read in line. And then most of the times, the editors give you ideas and clues into why they're rejecting the pitch. So then you say, oh, sorry, we've already published something similar. Oh, sorry, we've already published something similar. Which means I, as a writer, I am late to pitching. So when an event happens, I'm pitching to late because they've already grabbed it, you know. So there's so much you can do. Rejections are great because they give you a lot to work with and they can help you get better. So over the years, I pitched a lot less and got a lot more acceptance. Obviously, because you have to grow with each year. And then I am grateful that at this point, I really don't send out a lot of pitches anymore. I've kind of built like original expertise and full expertise so that editors now that have worked with me or are comfortable with me or are interested reach out to me to see if I'm interested in the stories. So what you want to do as a writer is look at rejection as just a blessing in disguise. And it doesn't matter how far up or how far wherever you get to in your career, rejection still happen. I mean, I, I have a, a novel that's coming out in September that was rejected several times, several zero. I read that. I read that somewhere. Yes. <laughs> so, so rejection is part of it. So if you take everything personally, you have to maybe step back and go pick a skin and then jump back into it. I love it, Lola. It's such a great advice for our listeners because that's exactly it. And what you said there about when an editor sends you a note that says, I'm not interested, it's an opportunity to ask questions. What I always say is don't treat this as a one-time event when you pitch and it's sort of make or break. It's an opportunity to start a relationship, which yes. is more important than the one pitch, right? Which is exactly what you're talking about too. Exactly. That's it. You know, it doesn't have a relationships. It takes time to cultivate them and respect them and also being, uh, for lack of a better word, available as well. So editors tend to remember writers that helped them at the last minute when they were in a bind. And so within reason, you have to do it with your reason, but if you have the bandwidth to help with last minute, they tend to remember things like that as well. That, you know what, I was in a bind and this writer came and really helped me or created epic work, you know, whatever. So there are many, I mean, if you look at those 10 years, I have a lot of detailed notes, you know, I have the pie charts, I talk about, I give advice on what to do and things like that. So, so I'll share that with you. That's brilliant. Thank you, Lola. The other thing that I just wanted to tease out from what you just said is what I share with people is put yourself in the editor's shoes and how can you make their job easier, which is what you're just talking about, right? They're going to remember that exactly because their job is not the easiest too. They're very overwhelmed. They have a lot of demands on them. They have tons of pitches coming into their inbox. So if you put yourself in their position, you will understand. I think you will get that empathy. And yeah, if you can make their job easier, if you can help them out in a crunch, they will come back to you because they'll want to work with you. And one thing I did want to add as one extra tip is I know there are a lot of software that people use to track if somebody has opened your email to read it. Don't. Mm. Don't use oh, it. Oh, interesting. I don't, I don't use it. I use it, it myself too, so I'm curious why. Because it breeds unnecessary resentment. 
Oh, because somebody, you see that the person has read your email, but you have no context. You just see that they've read it, and then you feel like, why are they ignoring me? But they've read it. But you don't know the context of why they haven't responded. And so it can breed unnecessary resentment. I used to use them, but then I stopped. Because people are busy, people have lives, you just don't know. And what you don't want is to feel like, especially if you are waiting for a response, and then you see that the person still looks at it every day, but isn't responding, it can breed unnecessary resentment. So that's why I, I took it off. I no longer use that kind of tracking to see somebody who called the email. It's out there, it's in the world, they have time, they'll respond to it, I'll do a follow-up, but I do not want right emotional mental state to be tied to waiting to somebody responding to my email. Yes, that's brilliant. That's very important. I think what you're talking about here is a skill that I think is a great skill to have in life in general, which is about not making assumptions and not interpreting events because we all interpret events, right? And not interpreting it in a way that, again, puts you down and says, well, this must mean... What's this must mean they don't they hate me. Yeah, yeah, because that's the thing. That's what's going to happen is you're going to, pick, uh, especially newer writers, they're going to think that the, the rejections they'll take personally. Everything becomes a kind of heightened emotional bubble, you know. And so to kind of prevent that, if you don't have to track, because I know I mean people that use it are usually maybe people from marketing or sales, you know, things like that. But for waiting for editors or seeing if they read my email, I, I had to stop it because I, I saw myself becoming a version of myself that I was like, why? I don't know the reason why they're not responding. You know, they're busy or I don't know. So I don't want it to breed unnecessary resentment. So that gives you more clarity of a mental space and emotional space to just keep moving on and doing things. So. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. So... There is a story that you share in your TED Talk, which we're going to link to as well. And I encourage everyone who's listening to watch the TED Talk. It's really great. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There is a story that you share that, that really strikes me, where you talk about the opportunity that you missed to go to the North Pole that you were so close to getting and you missed it by three votes. Yes. And then later on, you recognized, you learned that some of your friends didn't vote for you because they were like, why does she want to go to the North Pole? And what I want to sort of talk about now is the fact that we are put into boxes by others, but also by ourselves in this industry. And so from that story, what I'm curious to learn is how did that progress for you? And how were you able to stop letting others put you to boxes? But also, how do you prevent yourself from putting yourself in that box? Because that's what sort of, I think a lot of times, that's what is stopping us from going after what we want, because we are putting ourselves in that box that says, well, I can't do that, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, for me, it was by asking why not. And that was the whole point of the TEDx talk, right? Asking the question, why not? And when I ask the question, it can be verbal, but it can just even be through my actions, right? So for the people that kept putting me in boxes or try at their preconceptions, I ask them, why not? So if they say, oh, why are you doing this? Then I ask, why not? And then it forces them to kind of explain why they think I shouldn't do it. And then if the reason is not good enough, then I keep asking, well, why not? 
until I expose their own prejudice to them. Because most people don't think they are prejudiced until it's exposed to them, right? Because they have preconceived notions. And then why not is also when you ask yourself, why am I not allowed in this space? Who says I'm not allowed into this space? It's my space as well. I work hard for it. So gratefully, I haven't kind of over the years, I never really let people put me in boxes or define me. And that, I think, has been a very frustrating for a lot of people in the travel industry as well because they don't know how to define me or they want to just put a label or they expect me to do things that I don't do or I do things that they don't expect me to do. So because they have their preconceived notions of what I as a Black African woman am supposed to be doing or what I'm supposed to be writing about or what I'm supposed to be interested about, right? So in the TEDx talk, I said, just leave your own truth, just show up fully as yourself and live beyond other people's expectations of you because that's what actually makes you. The irony is that it makes you impossible to ignore because you're just doing your own thing on the side outside of the expectations. So just asking why not, challenging in that way, but either verbally or even through your actions, just doing what really makes your heart sing. People will try to force stuff into a box, but they can't. In the long run, they can't. Lola, you know, this is so interesting because what you just said, I literally wrote it out when I was preparing for our chat. I wrote out this quote of yours. When you start living your life beyond other people's expectations of you, you become impossible to ignore. And it's so powerful. Yes. It's so powerful. Yeah, because it's true. And the point is not to be like, oh, I want to be seen all the time. But it's just that people can't ignore the fact that you've shown up fully in your life and you're living your own life on your own terms and as authentically and as organically as possible, right? So that will be outside of the expectations and so that will make them notice. They just will, naturally. Like if there was a, something that I expected to be doing something else, isn't doing it, I'm going to look. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be wondering why. Mm. So that was the point of that. Oh, that's awesome. I, lo- I love that. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the fact that, especially when you start out in this industry, it can be such a lonely journey. Or at least that was my experience that, you know, I didn't know anybody in the industry. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just sort of poking in different directions. And I found the experience itself to be very isolating. And a lot of people feel threatened because a lot of people operate from a scarcity mindset that if you take that story or if you take that assignment, it means less for me. And I think that's part of the reason why I felt so lonely because maybe I was perceived as a threat to other people or whatever. And what I want to talk about, like I've been on a journey myself of switching from that scarcity to the feeling of abundance that because I'm so unique and you're so unique and everybody is so unique and have a very special way to tell stories and to look at the world. We never compete because we are all telling our own stories. So what I wanted to ask you was, how was that experience for you? Because I think it's so important to find people and to find a community that can help you feel like you're not alone. So first of all, community is super, super important. You need fellow 
colleagues so that you can champion each other, uplift each other, and share the same kind of battles. You know, it's the same sea, different boats, right, as they say. But what I've also found is that, like you said, the scarcity mindset. So it feels like a crabs in a barrel kind of situation where people feel like there isn't enough to go around. And for me, I come from the Yoruba tribe, right, in Nigeria. We're very community, open, giving, sharing mentality, and we come with a very affordance mindset. And there is a quote in my language, Yoruba, that says, the sky is big enough for all birds to fly without colliding. I mean, that is the mindset we grow up with. So me coming into a scarcity mindset, a community feels very unnatural for me, right? And then uh, one thing I also would like to say is that people worry a lot about relevance stay relevant, but they need to worry about evolution. Because what happens is, as a writer, as a photographer, as a creative, you evolve with st- different stages of your life. You transition. We have seen things, of doing things, of telling stories. You're not trying to remain relevant for the same audience you are 10 years ago or five years ago. Your audience evolves into you. You lose people. New people find you. But that's what I always try to tell colleagues is don't worry so much about staying relevant because then it's going to push you to do things that you cannot sustain because you're trying to stay relevant. But think about the natural evolution of your voice, of your career, of your life, and then that will be easier for you to transition into and to bring the right people at the right time in that stage of your life. So there are so many things I could talk about in community because community is great. But I also stay on the sidelines a lot because I am not a person. I do not like clicks. I do not do clicks. I'm not a clickish person. I operate from an abundance mindset and I feel like there's enough for everyone. There's enough to go around. I share a lot, a lot, you know. So that's kind of how I operate personally. It's all resonating with me, Lola. We need to meet. We need to meet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we will. We will meet. Uh, that's beautiful. I, I couldn't agree more, of course, with everything that you're saying. And I think also the staying relevant part, to me, when you talked about staying relevant versus evolution, what it brought to mind was off the moment versus long term, finding your own voice that you stay true to, which is sort of a similar way to think about it. When you're trying to like chase trends, you're chasing trends. You're not speaking from your voice, right? Which is sort of similar, I think, to what you were talking about here. No, absolutely. And I was gonna, I'm going to add kind of two quick things. You know, I'm going to say real quick, with evolution, as you move, you become a better, richer version of yourself. That's what it is, right? When something moves from this stage to that stage, it's getting better, powerful, whatever, you know. So you're getting to a better stage of yourself. But then I want to give you a metaphor about trends. So I look at trends like a raging sea, right? A raging sea. And if you follow every trend, you're a swimmer that's jumping into the waves, trying to swim. The sea can drown you because it's raging. It can drown you. But if you're someone that's well aware of the trends, you're monitoring the trends, you're like a surfer on a surfboard. So you're not swimming directly in the trends, but you're kind of navigating the trends adjusting yourself, you know, to see. You still have your style as a software, that's your voice, but you are using 
the technique, the platforms, the new trends to see how you can keep moving your voice without swimming and letting the trend consume you. So that's what I always say, you know, try to be like a sufferer on the waves with trends instead of just being a swimmer right in the middle of the trend, trying to go trend the trend. It's not going to happen. So that's how I feel. I'm not a big trend person. I, I keep up abreast of all the trends. I use what needs to be used to sharpen the voice, but I do not let trends consume. Beautifully said. Yeah, very, very well said. I love that. So we don't have a lot of time left, although I feel like I want to keep talking to you and maybe <laughs> maybe two or three hour podcasts will become a trend in the future, but right now they're not, you know? <laughs> so before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, a lot of people will listen to this interview and will read your bio, will you know, will look into you and a lot of them already know you and they will see, you know, all these incredible successes that you've had and all the publications that you've been published at, the brands, the amazing books that you've done. And I'm going to ask you about In Every Mirror, She's Black, because that's just an incredible project too. But they're going to see this picture of you, right? The snapshots of all the incredible accomplishments that you had. And what I want to sort of talk about now is there is a lot of setbacks. There is a lot of challenges. There is a lot of things that are not a part of our public picture of ourselves. But what I want to sort of talk about is what was for you one of the more difficult parts of this journey? Well, I'll tell you what my biggest regret was. When I first moved to Sweden, you know, Sweden gives parents a year and a half or so of like maternity parental leave. When I had my first child, I took one month off and I gave all that time to my husband because I felt like I needed to work. I couldn't sit home for a year and not do anything. That remains my biggest regret because I could have just sat home for a year and done nothing. So I was feeling the pressure of if I take six months, nine months maternity leave, more than that, which is a luxury in itself, right? If I took all that time of will my work still matter? Will I still be able to keep this client away? I, that was how I was thinking back then. So that remains my biggest regret is that I did not take enough time. I was dragging my daughter around to conferences, you know, which is fine. You know, it's okay. I'm a traveling parent. But I felt like I could have taken that time, at least six or nine months, giving him the rest. So for me, that was my biggest regret. And so for people that want to choose a certain lifestyle, you have to create the support system to support that lifestyle. Because once you make the choice, then the choice is yours. And then you have to put the systems in place to support it. And you have to live it. And you have to live it. So that, that I would say, is my biggest. I mean, now, you know, I mean, I have two kids, you know, so I've learned a lot. Things are different now, you know, but I think back then, which was nine years ago, that was what I did because remember that nine years ago was about when I just left my job as a programmer. And I just started working full-time as a travel writer, photographer. So I felt like if I had a baby now and took a year and a half off, it was all in vain. Mm. So, which comes back to social media, is that we see what we see. You know, people just share the highlights of their careers. And that's fine, but you need to also know that because people are also very private. I don't share my kids or my husband publicly because I have to keep something private and I have to respect their own privacy as well. So 
on like public Instagram or Twitter or things like that. I don't do that. Facebook kind of with just friends, you know, like close friends. But even though my work is also my life, travel is our life. You know, I was created this lifestyle that allows us to just flow between work and private life so seamlessly. Some things can also still be kept private and secret. You know, everything doesn't have to be. And I think one of the things that somebody said I found fascinating was, uh, I think it was Brene Brown. She said something about sharing publicly about your bikini wax doesn't mean you're being authentic. It's just with your sharing. <laughs> you know, like, and it's not to say you shouldn't do it. I'm not judging. I'm just saying she had the point in that just because I share every single detail of my life, that doesn't mean I'm authentic. That doesn't mean I'm more authentic than somebody that doesn't share every bit of their life publicly. So lots of things to navigate, you know, with social media. Yes, and you said something really important there that I hear this so often in my community that people come to me and they're like, well, I'm looking at this successful person on Instagram. I can never measure up to that. And you're not getting the whole story there. You never are getting the, the full story. So when we compare ourselves to somebody on social media, we're just doing ourselves such a disservice. Correct. But also, comparison, I feel like, especially as creative people, doesn't even make sense because creativity is subjective. Like, you have your own thing, you're doing your own thing, the person is doing their own thing. You see them at their, I call it a, I don't know, I, I shared this recently, where you see them and it feels like they're just taking the escalator up to their career with ease, but you never saw when they were crawling to get to the staircase, you know? Mm. So... To close our conversation, I just wanted to ask you two questions. One, what are you most excited on working on right now? And I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> and then the other question. <laughs> well, I'm super excited about my new upcoming novel. It's called In Every Mirror, She's Black. And the journey has been just an amazing journey from 70 rejections to now four different publishers. I'm going to publish it and probably more. So I'm super excited about that journey and it's one that's really special to my heart because I'm lifting up different voices in Sweden that people never hear about. I love Sweden. I think I'm one of its biggest ambassadors, but I also have to share some balanced stories because it's not a one-dimensional place. It's multi-dimensional. Every voice is important. So I'm really excited to bring these three women and one white guy, that's the following characters, in the book to the world this September. And everyone listening, check out the book. We're going to link to the pre-order for it. It's an amazing story. So we're very happy that Lola has created it. And what I want to close with is sort of this big question, but how would you start answering what it means to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance today? Mm, I think, and the word I think about is becoming. Right, so it's like Michelle Obama, but you're always becoming. You're becoming the next best version of yourself. Again, ties back to that one, kind of evolving, transitioning. But I think it's being able to just be, right? To say, you know what, this is me, imperfections and all, vulnerabilities and all. I am born. I make mistakes. I love crazily. I love passionately. Angry sometimes. I do this, but then accepting and being gracious to myself as well. Because what we can do is we tend to extend grace to other people, but we don't do it to ourselves. We don't say, you know what, you're okay, 
I'm fine, I'm human, and I made this mistake, what's the worst that could happen? Like people ask me, when you go on stage, do you get nervous when presenting? I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? I pass out. That just means <laughs> I'm human. They are not there to see me fail, you know? And so when you keep, when you have that view, that always grounds you. And then nothing becomes too scary just because life and I'm existing and I'm being, and, and that's how you just kind of become this more effortless version of yourself. Beautiful. Beautiful closure to our conversation. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We could talk forever. You're nice. Thank you, Lola. And good luck to you with everything. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Likewise. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, dear listeners, for sharing an hour of your day with us today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lola. And if so, please consider leaving us a review so that more listeners could find our show. I really can't stress how important it is for us to get reviews of our podcast. It helps us get in front of more people who might find our show really helpful and inspiring. So if something you heard today in our conversation with Lola resonated with you particularly, please consider leaving us your review. Go to Apple Podcasts right now and write us a review. That is one of the best ways you can support our show. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week for, oh my goodness, a season finale. <laughs>